And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hang on a minute. Who put you in charge? And who the hell are you anyway? I'm the Doctor. I'm a Time Lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Casterberus. I'm 903 years old and I'm the man who's going to save your lives and all six billion people on the planet below. You got a problem with that? No. In that case... Allons-y! Would you like a jelly baby? My Sarah Jane. Oh, look, rocks. Wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Watch it, space man. Oi, watch it, Earth girl. I will teach you the folly of your words, Doctor! Uh, Smith. Dr. John Smith. This is Duggan. He's a detective who's been kind enough to catch me. You always were an optimist, weren't you? Thank you for the compliment. Hello. Mate in six moves, master. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 14 of Who True Freaks, the show that covers all things Doctor Who that is also endorsed by the DeManzo family, despite certain disputes that arose from Senior Dufo's claims that he was the originator of a person who traveled in time in a box. However, that has more to do with certain quote-unquote associates spending long amounts of time in tomato crates in transit between Milan and Florence due to quote-unquote unemployment grievances. Anyhow, after last month's episode dealing with Doctor Who fandom, we're back to talking about an actual episode this time out, and this time we're diving headlong into the 1980s. Yes, the decade where Duran Duran was burning up the charts, gigantic food boxes were all the rage, guys were running around in banned deodorant bottles, and Oliver North was taking on the chin for President Ronald Reagan. And over in the UK, Doctor Who was celebrating its 25th year on the air, but you wouldn't know it from this episode. And the first serial that aired on that anniversary year was Remembrance of the Daleks. And here to talk about that show are some of the talents behind some of your favorite podcasts. First off, we've got Dave Walker, host of Flash Legacies podcast over at flashlegacies.libson.com. Hello, Dave. Hello, I'm here for the unlimited rice pudding. <laughs> no? Sure. Isn't that <laughs> we'll be passing that out as well later. Um Yay. Then we've got the co-host of Better in the Dark, Mr. Thomas DJ. Hello, Thomas. Hello, Sean, Dave, Shag, Andrew. I woke up this morning and a guy with a funny um, 
Umbrella came to me and said, I'm going to give you control of time and space, but he only gave me this stupid Tesla sphere. <laughs> also coming along for the ride is the co-host of the Fire and Water podcast, the one and only Shag. Going forward, I would like to have that creepy little uh, school music, school playground music, playing behind me at all times. I will see if I can get... Uh, I will see if I can get uh, Chris to put that in. Did anybody sing along? One, two, Freddy's coming. I was totally you. thinking Nightmare uh, on Elm Street. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been an amazing crossover. <laughs> and that, this would be about the right time. It didn't uh, yes. didn't Nightmare on Elm Street mm-hmm. sort of start mm-hmm. up? This is at the height of its, 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 its... Yeah. There you go. We could have had a Doctor Who Freddy crossover. That, that would have been spectacular. And rounding out our cavalcade of podcast to excellence is the one and only host, well, the one of two only hosts of Hey Kids Comics, and host of his... Host, Michael. Sh- shut up, I need to script these. Just let me just let me futz through this and I'll get, get done with it. And, and host of his new podcast, The House of Glittering Delights, correct? Mr. It's close enough. Oh, well, whatever. I don't I don't script this stuff out well enough. Mr. Andrew Leyland. Hey, Andy. Hello, everybody. Some strange usage of the term talent I wasn't previously aware of. (laughs) And if you haven't figured out, we're going to be talking about the episode today, Remembrance of the Daleks, a Sylvester McCoy episode. And uh, does anyone have any preamble? You know what? I keep meaning to mention this. I keep meaning to get with uh, Honeywell about this. We have a website that has actual email address for the show, whotruefreaks at uh, twotruefreaks.com, and I have been really neglectful at promoting that or, for that matter, even checking the email to see if anyone has emailed in. So Why don't they read my email? (laughs) It's it's been over a year. I was going to say, I've been sending an email pretty consistently that I don't get responses on, basically saying, I thought this was only a year-long experiment. Why am I still trapped in this servitude? (laughs) Yeah, well... Well, 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 you know, once once you do one podcast for Senor DiManzo, you're pretty much stuck there, Shaq. Sorry. Damn it. Uh, uh, you, you know, you can try and negotiate your contract, but uh, how much do you love your children? <laughs> just saying. You just stumbled into some time corridor technology, Shaq. You just keep going down and down and down to the end of time. But I do want to I do want to ask people to write into the show at whotruefreaks at twotruefreaks.com because we'd love to read your emails if I ever get around to finding what the password for the email address is. But uh, any uh, anybody have anything Doctor Who that they want to talk about before we get into the episode? Uh, that last episode that you and Shag and Hope did was really good. Well, thank you. No, oh. that was that was Hope's that was kind of Hope's idea. We, I felt kind of bad because. Hope wasn't able to make it on the 50th anniversary or the uh, time of the Doctor episode, so I thought I'd you know let her do let her sort of uh, take the reins for the show and you know do something that wasn't entirely predicated on shipping. So no, I, I despise the three of you for putting that whole lot of running to do song in my head for the rest <laughs> of the week. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> well, I. I, 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 I... Okay. Oh, go go I was going to say we sort of counterbalanced it at the beginning with the uh, <laughs> with the one by uh, oh Pertwee. Yeah, with the, the Pertwee one. Yeah, yeah. God. <laughs> you know, could be worse. Actually, I don't, I don't mind that one, but you can't sing it, so that didn't get stuck in my head. That's Andrew, true. There it is no been worse. <laughs> mm. 
Sean could have played Doctor in Distress under it. Uh, <laughs> I was not going to share that with him. <laughs> well, thank uh, you that you didn't. <laughs> I do have one thing to throw out to the panel. What do you feel about a doctor who's wearing pleated skinny jeans? It's Peter Capaldi. You can pull off anything. He's got a kip. I just, every time that there's a song by, and I'm trying to remember the name of the band, that has as its chorus, Daddy, why were you wearing girl pants? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think we need to just wait until we see it in action, and then maybe, yeah. you know, we could be, make make better judgments about, you know, Capaldi's, uh, wardrobe yeah i mean if we're really gonna go after wardrobes thing I mean, how, how do you think it would have turned out if people had based uh their opinion on colin baker's era just on his wardrobe i mean <laughs> we do don't we I yeah did. pretty much i just you know going for, going for the joke really yeah that's that was uh I'm, that stings well that was that was uh john nathan turner's idea oh yeah much <laughs> like a giant a a, a a form-fitting phosphorescent uh, sweater vest with big question marks all over it. Oh, we're going to talk about McCoy's outfit. Don't worry. Okay. Well, then we might as well go ahead and jump right into it. I've got the synopsis of Remembrance of the Daleks. So talk amongst yourself and mock me while I'm doing this. Uh, Remembrance <laughs> of the Daleks first aired in the UK on October 5th of 1988 and ran until October 26th. It was written by Ben Aronovich... Aronovich, maybe, I don't know, directed by Andrew Morgan and John Nathan Turner, and produced by Turner as well. The cast included Sylvester McCoy as the Doctor, so Sophie Allred as Ace, Simon Williams as Group Captain Kilmore, Pamela Salem as Dr. Rachel Jensen, Karen Gledhill as Allison, Dursley McLinden, who sounds like a guy from Harry Potter, as Sergeant Mike Smith, George Sewell as Ratcliffe, and Terry Malloy as, quote-unquote, the Imperial Emperor Dalek. We'll find out who he is later. The story opens with the Doctor and his companion Ace traveling to London to deal with a little unfinished business, namely retrieving the Hand of Omega, a stellar manipulator that the Doctor had hidden on Earth when he traveled to it back in 1963. Unfortunately, his recovery operations have had a slight monkey wrench thrown in them, as a group of Daleks have been searching for the Hand of Omega as well. The two meet up at the Colville School, where a military force helped by Group Captain Kilmore is investigating the alien presence and eventually gets into a firefight with the doll. The military has little effect on the plundering pepper pot, but thanks to some Nitro-9 su supplied by Ace, the Doctor is able to blow up the Dalek real good. The Doctor tries to convince Gilmore and his scientific advisor, Rachel Jensen, that the Daleks are of extraterrestrial nature and more than a match for the human forces. The Doctor and Ace also discover a transmat device in the basement of the school that is being used to teleport the Imperial Daleks to Earth making the Doctor's mission even more complicated, as he is now having to deal with two factions of Daleks vying for control of the Hand of Omega. The Doctor tries to further hide the Hand of Omega, or Omega, I'll mess that up even more, by having it buried in the cemetery, but not before imbuing Ace's baseball bat with Omega energy, giving it plus five versus Daleks. This comes in handy as Ace eventually has to beat on the Dalek, beat on the Dalek, beat on the Dalek with a baseball bat, oh yeah. Oh yeah, oh oh oh, while attempting to retrieve her boombox from the school. After she makes a hasty escape, she is eventually, sounded by, she is eventually surrounded by a trio of Daleks. But luckily the Doctor comes through with the MacGuffin device to scramble the Daleks, saving his companion once again. 
While this is going on, a fascist businessman, Radcliffe, is colluding with the renegade faction of Daleks on Earth to recover the Hand of Omega. He and his men dig up the coffin that the Hand was buried in and has it taken to the renegade's base. But the Imperial Daleks recover it with the help of an overly phallic special weapons Dalek and return it to the Emperor. The Doctor uses the transmat to contact the Emperor to ban the return of the Hand, but revealing himself to be... Wait for it... Davros, the creator of the Daleks, he tells the Doctor to get bent. The Doctor openly mocks Davros with, Davros with his schemes of attempting to use the hand to gain time travel knowledge comparable to the Time Lords, but Davros is unimpressed by the Doctor's threats and launch the hand, launches the hand into space. However, the Doctor cleverly rejiggered the hand to actually head to, into the heart of Skaro's son, causing it to go supernova and destroy Skaro in the process. He also reprogrammed it to return and blow up the Imperial Mothership as well. Which it does, but not before Davros can escape in an escape pod, of course. Crisis averted, things are wrapped up on Earth by having a little girl who was controlling the Renegade Daleks try to or kill the traitor Mike Smith, then get released from her Dalek mind control by the Doctor pulling a Captain Kirk logic bomb on the remaining Renegade Dalek. The story wraps up with the Doctor and Ace skipping out of Mike's funeral, and Ace wondering if what they did was good. The Doctor, in the end, only replies, Time will tell. It always does. And there we go. That's a sort of synopsis of Remembrance of Daleks. What do we have to talk about on this? That was Davros escaping at the end? I thought it was Doomsday. (laughs) I must have been confused. Sorry. (laughs) Well, what were general impressions? I mean, I I like the episode, but I'm watching it through the filtered lens of like a a 16-year-old kid who fell in love with it. I'm curious to hear other people's opinion. See, I, I didn't really see the episode because my PBS station stopped showing Doctor Who right after the Colin Baker series. So I never really got a chance to catch this one until they started redoing uh, for the 50th anniversary, doing the series on the various iterations of the Doctors. So when they did Remembrance of the Daleks for BBC on BBC America, this was the first time I saw it and I really enjoyed it. Uh, it, it was very different. Uh, there was a lot of it was a, a more grounded doctor he didn't use the the sonic screwdriver to get out of things he used his wits a lot more and i i really enjoyed the character of ace as well but i will get into her later i was just gonna say it's all right for a sylvester mccoy story there's a lot of action it's fun it moves along relatively quickly i remember watching it when it actually heard which was surprising because i kind of drifted away at this point but for some reason I kind of I drifted back for this one because it was it did get a moderate amount of publicity, if memory serves, in the Radio Times by being the return of the Daleks in the 25th series. But it they kind of held back a bit because they promoted Silver Nemesis as being the actual oh. 25th anniversary celebration, even though it wasn't. Uh, this was better. I think this would have been much better if they'd swapped them around and done this one as the 25th instead of that one. But yeah, it's all right. It rattles along quite well. It's unoffensive. <laughs> um, the thing is, is that this is, I think, the, the beginning of the only real worthwhile um, McCoy season. Um, mm-hmm. And it kind of shows almost from, from the very beginning that this is a really good episode. And somebody is on point 
for the first time in three years of you know in in the McCoy era, and uh, you know I think it's a pretty. I mean, there's some silly, bullcrappy, but overall it's a fairly strong episode. Yeah, I mean, it is one of my earliest memories because I would have been four when this was first on. Piss off. and one thing i do remember is that i've been told that as long as i ran up the stairs the daleks couldn't get me Uh. (laughs) right there daleks come up the stairs and yeah terrified me for quite a while but it's okay because doctor ran away and everything was happy for my four-year-old self Yeah, that was one of the things that was a trope of uh, the Daleks for the longest time. And I think it was kind of accentuated in what was it Destiny of the Daleks, the Tom Baker episode, where he mm-hmm. basically yeah. escaped up the stairs and, you know, just sort of openly mocked the Daleks. So, yeah, that that did give them a much higher level of threat. But, you know, it does in in retrospect, it does seem kind of goofy because now we see the Daleks just flying all over everywhere whenever we see them on the screen in uh, modern Doctor Who continuity. Well, can put it in context, This that is my one abiding memory of this serial, because it's, cast your minds back lovely listeners, there was no spoiling it we didn't know that was coming so when he runs up the stairs at the end of it we, we think it's just going to turn into a joke like it did in the Tom Baker era and when the Dalek starts levitating I, something I, I think is still a pretty good effect mm-hmm. even today it still looks pretty damn good you were genuinely shocked by it and the fact that that was the cliffhanger was brilliant it was an excellent cliffhanger but made, made more so by the fact that we didn't know it was happening it wasn't spoiled we hadn't seen any photos of it they hadn't put it in any of the trailers or anything it was a real proper cliffhanger the doctor runs up the stairs oh, oh let's mock the power pot the power pot the pepper pot and suddenly it flies and you're like oh oh dear <laughs> okay <laughs> excellent good we've got to wait a week mm-hmm. yeah and yeah. I- now, back in the 60s, they, they had these Dalek comic strips and stuff, and the Daleks flew in that. And there was hints here and there with anti-gravity discs. Because as, as Andrew said, yeah, I mean, this was it. This was the first time you ever really saw it happen. And uh, it was terrifying. It was like, oh, my God. that What could possibly stop them now? Kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I, Baseball I, bat. Yes. <laughs> I agree we'll get to that. This, the special effects on the levitating of the Daleks was really good. The the, the look of the energy uh, coming up underneath the Daleks was really neat. And I, I guess they had to sort of manipulate something to get it up the stairs to make it sort of look up there. Sort of like a one of those granny sort of chair yeah. type things. It's probably used. Well, yeah. I mean, the special effects as a whole in this ep- in this. Uh serial are really, really, really good. That's an incredible step up from what we usually expect from a Doctor Who classic serial. Yeah, they've spent some money on this one. I mean, the only place that it hold, it doesn't hold up is these god-awful opening titles, which oh. look so dated. And the the theme music's awful for this series. Yeah. But other than that, the actual show itself, yeah, it all, the special effects hold up really well. I think what what you're seeing happening here is, you know, McCoy took over in 87. And I don't know what the date of it was, but whatever. So he took over in 87. That's where you get your title credits from. That's where some of those other, the, the traditional special effects were around. Well, Star Trek Next Generation starts about this time, too. So I think, I don't know what, this is just my assumptions. But the, I think, you know, that a lot of the creators are looking around at what's, what other special effects are being used on television at that point. And they're like, we can't use 
what we normally do. We have got to step up our game. So this is a year later after they made some changes. I don't know whether it was more money or just different systems. But yeah, they, they realized they've got to make Doctor Who look better at this point. Because it's not even remotely holding its own against what was on the television at the same time. Yeah, but in retrospect, I think this holds up better than the first season of Next Generation Special Effects. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah, I, honestly, genuinely, uh, I think it's more adventurous. It's got more imagination. They may not have the budget, but they're trying more with it. If you go back and watch the first season of Next Gen, now a lot of those effects look really schlonky. Even in HD, they don't look particularly good. Later seasons are a lot better. Whereas this, it looks, because a lot of it does look like it was done in camera as well. It holds mm-hmm. up, I think, a lot better than the first season of Next Gen. But the, the comparison thing, the Next Gen didn't start over here until 1990. So while they may have been looking at films and other things to go, yes, we need to, we need to update the look of the show, they, I don't think they would really have been looking in the direction of Star Trek, because as far as the general audience in the UK will have been concerned, Next Generation wasn't even a thing yet. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Well, um, just talking in general, I was going to, after you guys went through about, you know, your your impressions on the episode, I just want to say for me, I, I actually had f- drifted away from Doctor Who during the Colin Baker era. And, and this, this is not a, a dig, Thomas, sorry, and I don't want to start a fight now, we can have it another day, but I thought the Colin Baker episodes <laughs> were unwatchable. The, the stories didn't make any sense, the, the, the way it was directed, was it just it drove me nuts. I couldn't even watch well, it. I'll be and, honest with you, Shag. I, I'm not going to argue with you on the fact that the stories were freaking wretched. Now, I'm not... Yeah, and, and the actors were fine, but it's just that yeah. it was horrible to watch. In fact, I would say it extended into McCoy's first season. Because yes, I, no, the common denominator, though, Shag, is Bonnie Langford. Sorry to interrupt. Carry on. <laughs> well, I would say... The, uh, the first season was still pretty bad of, of Colin Baker. But either way, so I came back, I, you know, I drifted away during Colin Baker's era. I came back and tried Dragonfire and thought, okay, this is still unwatchable. And, and I was out. And then when this came along, like, like Andrew said, you know, I got kind of excited because some of the hype, we got some of the hype over here in the United States. So I, I was like, well, I'll give it a try. I watched Remember the, of the Daleks and I was hooked back into Doctor Who and I have never left it since as, as a fan. So um, I, I love this one. I think it, it gave breathe new life into the show is probably the best way to put it well uh talking about mccoy as the helm uh, as the doctor this time out how does he in uh how does he differentiate from the other doctors what makes him a sort of special what stands him apart from the other iterations of the character his clothes aren't ridiculous <laughs> uh, i don't like sylvester mccoy at all really he's not no um he's the only one of the actors to play the doctor ever that i just can't get behind even john pertwee if you remember we did an episode i even forget which one it was sorry yeah, the and i was like no no i don't like this guy at all but i've watched more pertwee since then a lot of old episodes got shown as part of the 50th and they showed a, a gorgeous hd print of spearhead from space mm. and just recently the horror channel showed um the autons on terror the autons and I'm actually really getting into it, and I'm really starting to dig his portrayal and his performance. And But McCoy, no, I've never been able to get into him at all. I like this one, because I think I like the story in this one, and I like they look like they've spent some money on it, and it feels a little bit different. For me, he's the weakest part of it. I never buy him when he's trying to be serious and dramatic. He can't do that thing that the best doctors can do, where he's funny one minute and serious the next. I never... He doesn't have the oomph 
to be seriously dramatic and I've never got into him and I've tried the amount of people who say to me no this one's really good or Ghostlight or Curse of Fenric or one of them and every time I watch it he just takes me out of it and I can't get behind him I didn't originally I wasn't going to come on (laughs) <laughs> because I didn't want to be the one person who was sat here going, well, actually, I don't like him. But, you know, whatever. So, go on, you all feel free now to tell me how wrong I am. No, no, no I mean, dark. you're allowed to not like him. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's your right. friend. <laughs> the thing well. that's fascinating about the McCoy, uh, about McCoy, is that there are two separate versions of the Doctor during the McCoy era. There's that whiny sort of, please like me, uh, McCoy that we get in his first two seasons and this one who is I've got a plan and you can't figure out what my plan is but trust me it's all going to come out in the end which it never did but <laughs> yeah we, we kind of go from a sort of Joe Besser type doctor you know that's just just kind of goofy and silly to this almost almost sort of dark and Christopher Eccleston like one especially in this scene where he's talking with Davros and, you know, openly mocking him, which, you know, I, I hate to say, Andy, I thought that was a kind of powerful moment. Yes, yes, he doesn't pull it off in the way that Eccleston probably would have or that some other better actor may have, but I thought it was, you know, specifically knowing how sort of goofy that McCoy likes to play things, especially if you watched him covered with bird shit in the <laughs> Hobbit movies. Yeah, but we're talking about an, a, a guy who was hired to be Doctor Who because John Nathan Turner saw a videotape of him putting a live ferret down his pants. <laughs> and oh, that God. qualifies you, you to be the Doctor how? Because it's John Nathan Turner. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. I, uh, I like McCoy. I think his dark... See, I totally buy his dark stuff. It's his comedy that I have a hard time accepting in the oh, show. I have, a, I have a problem accepting that as well. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> um, and I love the dark. Like, I, I totally got into it. Because, you know, sure, if you compare him later on to some of the other actors, as, as they were just saying with Eccleston, yeah, he doesn't have the gravitas. But at the time, it was no one had done dark and moody and scary Doctor Who. I mean, this is the first time they really introduced those mysterious qualities back into the character. And this was part of, the, even though Cartmel was a big part of it, McCoy said he wanted to reintroduce some of the mystery to Doctor Who. Because by this point, we knew everything. You know, there were no mysteries about the Doctor anymore other than his name. And so McCoy and Cartmel and all them actively tried to make it scary. And I, I liked that sort of ominous sort of version of McCoy. In fact, I, I got to see him at a convention a couple years ago. And they they handed McCoy the script from the Matt Smith episode, the Pandorica opens or whatever, mm-hmm. the, the Big Bang. Remember when right. he's standing at Stonehenge and he's yelling right. up into the sky? Ask who yeah. goes first. Yeah. I was there in the audience watching him do it. And it was really cool. Uh, and he's just like, he's got a power to him that I love. So, so do you feel that it was more the script that was... That was uh, limiting him? Or do you think it was just you know, his acting ability? talking to Andrew or me? No, no, uh, either one, you know, t- talking to, you know, what you felt about, you know, sort of limited McCoy in your opinion. Well, his first season, I, I recommend no one watch his first season. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's <laughs> absolutely terrible. Ever. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it. it's written horrible. It's directed horrible. The production value is terrible. It's embarrassing. And I mean, if you want to watch more McCoy, watch this. Um, probably if you have to watch Silver Nemesis, just do it with a lot of alcohol. Um, cause, because there is a lot of like, there's a more of the, the mystery building in Silver Nemesis. And then jump to probably Curse of Fenric or Ghostlight, I would say. 
Uh, Ghostlight is my uh, one of my favorite Doctor Who serials of all time. Because it doesn't make any sense, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I tried watching that one, and I'm sat going, "Is is this like Ibsen or something? Am I not supposed to understand it?" <laughs> no, it, it I, I'll admit it, it's one of these things you either really, really love or really, really hate. I I, I freely admit that. So so my daughter, she was about six at the time, decided to watch it with me, and. She did not have a clue what was going on, obviously. And then I tried to explain it to her, and I couldn't do it. I'm like, well, <laughs> honey, see, they have a spaceship underground. Um, hmm, you know, and just <laughs> I couldn't do it. <laughs> Nothing to do with this episode, though. So, yeah. so Sean put out the question. Now, obviously, I've rambled as I usually do. Anyone else want to put their finger on why they think McCoy may or may not have, have had trouble? Well, it's just it was it was bad stewardship with that first two seasons. You know, John Nathan Turner. Remember, it, they wouldn't let John Nathan Turner do anything else at this point. They said the only re- way we're going to bring Doctor Who back is if you, you know, come back as producer. He was obviously burnt out, and um, it really wasn't until he met a young man we're going to talk about later on who had this really interesting idea for the show that kind of energized him, and I think it shows in this season as a whole. Now, you kept saying his first two seasons. This is only his second season. Wait a minute. There's the season with uh, the Happiness Patrol. And that's the, this, the that's with, this with, season. With Mini Hitler. No, that's, no, that's the first season. Happiness Patrol is first season. Then there's the se- the season with uh, Dragonfire. And, that's the same uh, season. Hold on. No, it's the first season has Time of the Ronnie, Paradise yeah. Towers... Yeah, uh, Dragonfire and yeah. Greatest Show in the Galaxy. No, wait, Greatest Show yeah. in the Galaxy and this, this season. This, and no, Greatest Show in the Galaxy is this season. As he's still well, where's Paradise Towers? That's the first season. It's first season. It's with Mel. Mel. Yeah, I was I was convinced that there were there were three seasons. He, he had three maybe seasons. it just oh, felt yeah. like three seasons because it was so bad. <laughs> Mel was only in the first season. Then you had this season where Members of Alex, Silver Nemesis, Happiness Patrol. And sorry, yeah, Greatest Show in the Galaxies this season. And the final season is Battlefield, Ghostlight, Curse of Fenric, and Survival. I may have got them a little jiggery out of order, but it's three seasons total. So it's the first season that's unwatchable. This is the beginning of the of his second season. Either way. So, so yes, you, you were saying about uh, there's someone who came along and energized him. Someone came along, I think they energized John Nathan Turner, and it kind of shows automatically because all of a sudden it the, the show is much faster paced, it seems. There's much more vitality between uh, McCoy and Sophie Aldred. Thank God that whole ace thing got dropped. Um, it, it just becomes, I think, a tighter, stronger show for it. And, um, well, granted, a little bit of the, I've got a master plan, goes a long way. But you, I, I can forgive that because I, because of the the general, with the exception of like silver, like a silver nemesis or a greatest show on the galaxy, the the quality of the stories just goes way way up. Do we think that the the stories and quality goes up more specifically because one of the reasons? Because I've noticed in these later episodes uh, with McCoy, they didn't do as many prolonged series. They didn't do these six part and sometimes even eight part series. That we saw back in in the uh, in, oh. in the earlier days, that the, the series usually run sometimes four or less episodes, and that three episodes having, is that the that they standard. have to get more stuff in in a shorter amount of time. So the scripts have to be a lot tighter. Do you think that's one of the things that may have helped the show? Oh, 
Absolutely, because you don't have that episode of, here we are running down corridors for 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or go back to the set we used two episodes ago for no reason other than to reuse the set and have something happen there and separate and get back together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think it helped break them up a little bit. It was tied into this formula of 25-minute episodes with cliffhanger endings that run for four or six weeks or whatever. And they've... That was one of the things that I felt was holding the show back at this point. They did try to mix it up a bit by having Colin Baker's... Was it his first season? His 45-minute episodes. Yeah. But they still felt the desire to have them be to be continued. So every ep- every story was 90 minutes, or the one with Patrick Trail was three of those episodes, wasn't it? Three 45-minute episodes. Mm-hmm. Whereas... I think if they'd decided at that point to ditch the old 25-minute formula, ditch the cliffhanger formula, and I think if the first Colin Baker season had just been 45-minute episodes, I think that would have energised the show as well, and maybe it wouldn't have been cancelled, and maybe we wouldn't have ended up with Trial of a Time Lord, and then it ending uh, when Sylvester McCoy took over, or a couple of years after. But the, the fact that they were only having 14 episodes now instead of 26 was a budgetary thing and also the head of BBC at this point just didn't like the show he's, he's been very vocal about the fact that he didn't like the show so cutting it down like that was their way of keeping the show going whilst reducing the money but certainly yeah, reducing the amount of time you're spending on a single story can only help you improve the pacing on it the pacing in this you can watch all four episodes of this back to back and it works you don't ever feel like there's an episode where, like like Thomas just said, they, they, they get caught, they escape, they run down a corridor, they get caught again just to pad out a 25-minute episode. This one feels vaguely cinematic for Doctor Who in the 80s. And I think switching it up like that, if they'd had the nerve to do that when Colin Baker took over, we may not have seen the show end after season 26. And I've killed the show. <laughs> no, I, was, I, I obviously have more to say, but I'm trying to be polite and let other people talk. Oh. <laughs> Dave, did you want to? Did you want to input on any of this? Well, basically, he was my doctor. I mean, as I said, I was fairly young, so he was the first one I encountered. And for years after that, I couldn't remember his name, so I only knew him as the doctor when he would show up in other things. So <laughs> that's adorable. So. It, it took a long time. I had to associate him with a cat in order to try to remember his name. See if you can guess which one. Uh, but yeah, see, you know, uh, does does McCoy sort of does it kind of make it difficult? Did McCoy do a lot of other things aside from Doctor Who? Because I know I I know Tom Baker, aside from a few movie roles, I remember. Uh, you know, he was predominantly known as Doctor Who. Did McCoy have an acting career outside of this that kind of? Allowed him he was to what you call uh, a new wave comedian. Okay. Um, one of those new vaudevillians that were kind of popular at the time where you had people who kind of told jokes but also did kind of crazy stunts. Like I said, the Nathan Turner, according to what I've heard, he watched this videotape of his uh, a comedy performance he did up in Edinburgh where, among other things, he took a ferret and put it down his pants and said, well, he's got a certain energy and I think the kids would like him. Let's hire him. He was known. I knew him. He's one of the few times they've cast a doctor in the old show, other than Peter Davison, that I was like, all right, I know who that is. He was a popular performer in kids' shows, Vision On, and he was one of the O-Men in Jigsaw, and he was in Tiz Was, and these were all popular kids' shows in the 70s and the 80s, and he was kind of like a slapstick 
comedian. He played the spoons and had pies poshed in his face and stuff like that. So I don't know whether my association with him from that carried over to him being the Doctor. And that's why I was never able to quite accept him. I don't know. Everyone else, other than Davison, they've been the Doctor to me before they've been anybody else. Even Tennant, who I'd seen in a couple of things, and particularly Eccleston, who I was very impressed with before Doctor Who, he's still the Doctor. He still managed to, to make that part his own. But Mackay, I had trouble differentiating him from the guy who used to run around in the skin-tight outfit with the big O on it. Um, and I think he was Nosy Bonk mm-hmm. as well. I could be wrong. I don't think... He, I think he may have been Nosy Bonk in Vision On. You need to go and look all this stuff up on YouTube. <laughs> I can only but, assume so, because yeah, the, the, you're, you're speaking a different language first. Yeah, Nosy Bonk, <laughs> he was a character with a big mask over his face, so that's why I don't know that it was him. And he had this huge nose, and he would just wander around doing Mr. Bean-type slapstick to a theme song every week that was and that's what he would do for about a minute in every show and they would do all the sketches and stuff and they cut back to nosy bonk doing something funny and i'm sure i've read somewhere that that was mccoy but it may not have been because like i say he had the mask on but whether or not i accepted him because i knew him from jigsaw and tiz wars and all of that stuff i don't know but that's what i knew him from slapstick kids tv okay um since we've talked about uh, McCoy as the Doctor for a while, why don't we talk about the Companion? What What is our opinion of Sophie Aldred as uh, Ace, the Companion? I love well, Ace. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that the best uh, errors of the Doctor come from the fact that there's, there's like a great amount of chemistry between the Doctor and a Companion. I mean, look at Tom ba- the, uh, you know, the Tom Baker error with, with Sarah Jane Smith. And I think there was a tremendous chemistry between McCoy and Sophie Aldred. And it shows on in every episode they're in. And I think that having these this other character, this other actress, uh, definitely is another thing that helped energize McCoy and made him better. I, I like their sort of parental relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, this, um, this is... This is Leela... This is Leela Tom Baker, only uh, without the skin-type bikini. I see it different. I see it as a parental, like, father-teenager. Because, I mean, he's bickering with her. At the same time, he obviously, like, you know, about the go get something to eat. You know, like, he's, he's explaining there's this amazingly fascinating van, and she doesn't care. Mm-hmm. And it's bothering him. And he says, go get something to eat, fine. But then the minute she turns the corner, he caringly goes, here, you need money. And it... It was played for the gag, but it's also it reminds. Well, maybe it's because I have a teenager. Maybe that's why. But it's like <laughs> you want to wring their neck, but at the same time, it's like, no, wait, I'm going to take care of you. Here you go, kind of thing. And it's um, it reminds me a lot of a, a father-daughter relationship, and I like that. I thought it was really unique for the show. And she's wearing Batman earrings in, in this episode. Oh yeah. She's also she's also got a Jerry Anderson badge on her um on her jacket, which I thought oh, was quite cool. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's- Ace was kind of interesting for me. I mean, she was very, I guess, just viewing her from the single episode, you could kind of see her as a very stereotypical 80s, you know, post-punk teen, uh, especially with her carrying around the boombox and wearing the jacket with all the pins on it. it. You know, you kind of got that sort of 80s punk type feel. But yeah, I agree with you, Shag. You do have a really good relationship between her and the Doctor that does seem 
very much almost fatherly and father-daughter relationships. But it's it's nice that we get because you supposedly you know back in the Hartnell era where we had a father-daughter relationship, it never felt that way. But here it, it kind of does. That boombox was ridiculous. Well, it was the eighties. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's fascinating always watching like television producers and movie producers conception of what outsider culture was like with teenagers and, and I find it fascinating that this was basically John Nathan Turner's idea of what it wasn't supposed to be a post-punk it was supposed to be a punk so yeah, she's, a, she's a very safe middle class punk though isn't yeah. she yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly she she's like she's like a punk from you know the suburbs you know she she listens to the Ramones but she's she wouldn't be caught dead at a Ramone concert because she get covered slightly the slightly live Kennedys <laughs> right I think the boombox era was dead by this point anyway I think it was all you know people wearing headphones now. Uh, I think the boombox was probably around 85. Uh, mm-hmm. It's only so long that a technology can last when you need, like, a billion double D batteries to power it. That's true. Uh, doctor did some jiggery-pokery, I'm sure. <laughs> but the fact that he let her bring that into the 1960s on her shoulder, <laughs> blasting away, is like, oh, no, nah, it would never. No. He would not. Completely she destroys it, he goes, good. It was right. an anachronism. Yeah. Yes, like they were going to reverse engineer that and suddenly be able to, you know, get the time globe technology. Yeah. You see, what I would have wanted is for her to be able to like shoot missiles out of, a la Desperado. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would have been sweet. Now, okay, let me ask you guys about the Nitro Nine. This is Ace's big sort of uh, explosive explosive device. How does that come about? Is that something that Ace brought up, or is that something that the Doctor came up with and Ace just uh, co-opted it from him? What's the deal with that stuff? It's the reason Ace got kicked out of school, as far as I remember. Mm-hmm. Basically, she created it herself and accidentally blew up a science lab. Yep. Nice. What would have uh, thought she'd have got extra credit for that? I know. Except, she, oh, sorry, it wasn't it wasn't science lab. It was an art room. Oh, oh right, well, there you go. Science, um, she she would have been patted on the back yeah. for it, but art, no, they frown on that in the art community. <laughs> Apparently, they didn't see it as art as the way she did. Something <laughs> like that. It's a performance art piece. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Um, Sean, just so you know, part of her origin is, as Dave's hinting at there, with like uh, the explosives and stuff. Another piece of her origin is she is essentially Dorothy from Wizard of Oz. Okay. Oh, yeah. She she was sucked up in a time tornado. She her real name is Dorothy. Um, I mean, there's 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 hints throughout. I, I can't remember the rest of them, but there's hints throughout the series that she's supposed to be connected in or or representative of Dorothy from Wizard of Oz. I guess the girl, you know, normal girl in a strange place kind of concept. Mm, makes sense, I guess. And yeah, the little reminds her Toto. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe she had Toto on the other side of the tape deck she was playing. You know. Right. We're gonna play Africa. And, <laughs> and the doctor does sort of like he look like he could have come from the lollipop guild. So there he goes. Well, now wait a minute. Hold on. You know that's something we skipped. We did not talk about McCoy's clothes. Yes, he wears the silly question mark pullover. But other than that, his outfit is pretty much completely normal. He's the first normal-looking doctor since Patrick Trotton, as far as the that's clothes he go. Still his trousers? Sorry, okay, pants. He, he did steal his pants. You're right, but. If you, if you follow, so you're all sitting here thinking in your head, okay, Pertwee, you're all doing it I, right now. I take your contention and say three words. 
question mark umbrella. But it's subtle. It's a big red question mark where the handle's supposed to be. No, it's a handle. Shaped that's like a about as mark. subtle. That's about as subtle as a fish sandwich with uh, orange juice instead of uh, mayonnaise. The hell does that even mean? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Hey, Why would you drink mayonnaise? I'm just saying. <laughs> You're very thirsty. You compare his clothes to all the you know, previous doctors. You could see him walking down the street. If you saw Peter Davison, Colin Baker, Tom Baker, John Pertwee, every single one of those, you would stop with your mouth hanging open, going, "What the hell?" I don't know. With with Davidson, you could imagine, oh, maybe he's going to a cricket match. But other than uh-huh. that, yeah. You would think that that Tom Baker is kind of an eccentric college professor. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. You, yeah, you take the, the the scarf off Baker, and he could eat. I mean, maybe the big boots would be a bit of a giveaway, but you could take the scarf off Baker, and he could walk around Manchester, and no one would bat an eyelid. Sure, Peter but he's Davison, got scarf, though. Yes, exactly. Peter Davison again. You would have to lo- lose the coat. Yeah. yeah, and he looked, well, maybe not those trousers, but certainly his top is all right, yeah. But yeah, I see what Shag's saying, especially later when he puts the brown jacket on instead of the white. Mm-hmm. He, he certainly does look a lot more like he's just trying to blend in and take the jumper off him with the stupid question marks all over it. And yeah, he fits right next to Eccleston and, and Tennant and Smith, really. Yeah. Do you know, I noticed for the first time this time, he wears a watch too. I, don't, yeah. I can't remember. Besides Matt Smith, does anyone else wear a watch? I can't think of anyone. I don't recall one. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Either that or McCoy just forgot to take it off during filming. <laughs> now, of course, the uh, the main antagonists in the story are the Daleks again, surprising enough. But uh, what do we think about the, the addition of some of the newer Daleks in this? The, especially one of the things I thought was interesting was they did a lot – of references to not only sort of Nazi Germany, but a lot of references to racism in this. Now, in the States during the 1960s, we were going through the whole civil rights movement and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Over in the UK, were you were you having stuff like this? Because they had you know, subtle references to the the house of uh, the sergeant not, not wanting to have colored stay at the house. Was this uh, something that was going on in the UK at the time? Uh, well, neither day of our life were alive in the well, 60s. I, 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 I know you weren't alive. Um, I I do I'm remember history. my my parents telling me when watching stuff like this that, yeah, they would have signs like no coloreds, no Irish. And there was another one as well. I forget what the third one was that were in the windows of certain B&Bs and stuff. But by the time I was conscious of stuff like that by the late 70s early 80s it had, it had largely been taken away i'm not saying it, it didn't exist anymore but we'd kind of moved past that kind of discrimination being so blatant i mean we still had we still had the bmp that we had to fight the british national party but that was throughout the 80s more than anything was that who it, ratliff was supposed to be andrew it's entirely possible he was supposed to be some kind of BNP representative, but they don't go out of the way to say that for obvious reasons. He's wearing a black well, star on his lapel. I didn't know if that was representative of something. Well, the the BNP wrapped themselves in the Union flag. Oh, that's, okay. Which is, is what they do. For years, the, the Union Jack or the Union flag was associated with them. And it actually became um, a period where we didn't tend to refer to that flag. if the, We used the, the St. George's Cross 
to represent England because of that. And slowly over time, it, we've we've taken it back and reclaimed it. And a lot of that is to do, I hate to say it, but a lot of it is to do with Jerry Halliwell and Oasis. Saying no. Yeah, Jerry Halliwell were in that dress at the Brits that year, did an awful lot for re-establishing patriotism and, and the flag, essentially. It so yeah. My flag. Well, yes. Well, she always was the the most interesting Spice Girl to look at. But so yeah, the the stuff in the window was all all genuine. They, I think they have said they wanted to have Ace rip it down, and they for some reason they didn't go that far. And I don't know why, because it would have been better had she done that. Mm-hmm. Had hey. she just seen it and it would have disgusted her, and she just rip it down. That would have been that would have been a nice touch. That was one of the things they but, only sort of you know mentioned it they never really addressed you know they only sort of hinted at it they never really addressed it as this is a problem that we want to deal with it's a nice it's it's a nice acknowledgement of how far you've come the problem with whitewashing history is it doesn't acknowledge that yes we used to be like that but we're not anymore Mm -hmm. and it denigrates progression when you whitewash history so the fact that it was just there as a background detail was a nice touch especially in a story that wasn't really about that they're not really they're not really on a soapbox for anything in this particular story really other than the normal dalek parallels with nazi germany so to have that in the background was a nice acknowledgement that yes this used to be a thing and it isn't anymore and that's a good thing well Well, another example go ahead thomas another example of them addressing racism without like getting all we're going to learn you some, is that really nice conversation that McCoy has with that uh, counterman, where, yeah, that, yep. you know, th- there's the acknowledgement that if things had never changed, I would, you know, I would still be a slave, but it's not pushed. It's just two people having like, just like a decent kind of fun, con- you know, kind of conversation amongst themselves while they're relaxing. That's a fantastic scene. You, you know who yeah, that guy is. is, right? You know who he went on to become famous for? No. He's Jeffrey the Butler from Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Is it? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I did not recognize him. It's okay. The head teacher earlier in the episode was Hitler and Admiral Ozzo. But because we're talking about Nazis and stuff, <laughs> may as well point oh. out he's Hitler. Yeah, well, he's Mr. Bronson oh, Mr. from Grey yeah. Jill for an entire generation. But yeah, he's Hitler in Last Crusade and. Admiral Ozzel in Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, I'd spotted him. And George Sewell is also in this. Who's better known to me for being detectives? Alec Freeman in, in UFO. No, ah. and the detectives, yes. With um, Robert Powell. Who was Jesus. So that's nice. <laughs> so so he went from... Michael Shear, the, the principal guy you're talking about, he actually has played tons of roles in Doctor Who over the years. Um, I, yeah, I he's, in a to... Tom, he's in Tom Baker. He's in our Tom Baker serial. Is it, um, oh God, Brenna Morbius? He's I... in I can't remember at this point. So is uh, so is a Pamela Salem has been in at least one other time. She was yes. in uh, the Robots, Robots of Death. Death. Yeah, but Michael Sheard and apparently the Vicar, uh, the Blind Vicar, both of them have been in tons of Doctor Who episodes before, and this is uh, these were the last ones, the last time they were in Doctor Who. Actually. So, sorry, didn't well, mean Shag, to put you down. Shag, Shag, do you have anything you want to say about the sort of uh, you know, kind of not really stealth, but the sort of. Uh, covert feelings of uh, racism or dealing with racism that they had in the show? I, I didn't put it together till you guys started mentioning all the instances of it. I don't think it's, now that I'm hearing it, it's not as stealth as, well, it's not as subtle yeah. as, we, as we should have 
as I thought it was. Yeah, there's the sign. I like how Ace takes off the sign, and she's disgusted. And even though she didn't get to rip it down, she did take it down, and she's going off to go chew out the the, the owner of the house. I mean, you can see her. She's walking out of the room going, hey, what the fuck? But um, so you, know, you get that where she's walking off in anger. You've got that conversation that Thomas referenced. And then uh, uh, and, um, sorry, Dave mentioned there's, I think, the, the difference between the Daleks, you know, mm-hmm. the two different racial differences in the Daleks. I mean, yes, Davros is, is a factor of why one faction is with another, but they're genetically different, so they're fighting a race. So I guess racism is a very quiet theme throughout the whole story, and that's interesting. I like that. I, I think the, the closest thing we get to a really blatant reference is when Ratcliffe says the thing about, we fought on the wrong side in World War II. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, you know, there was the obvious visual references of, you know, one faction of the Daleks being essentially white, and the other faction of the Daleks being oh, black. Jeez, there's another one. Okay, I mean, I, I mean that's just but that's just. We the oppressed Daleks, Massa. <laughs> Ow! Wow. <laughs> okay, uh, since we're back on the Daleks, what about the special weapons Dalek? <laughs> Alright, I'm going to demand I go first on this. Uh, go ahead. Because I know where this is going. Do you think going. it's an abomination? <laughs> well, they, pro- they they would because uh, because it's different. But I like the special weapons, Dalek. And as a fan, back in 1988, at least my the group of fans I knew, thought this was really cool. Because the Daleks, you know, they're, they're somewhat effective, whatever, but you bring in a badass. He's a tank, basically. He is the tank of the Daleks. And he's oily, and he looks he looks more Star Wars than Doctor Who at that point, because he's he's dirty. Star Wars tech was always dirty and filthy. He was and, vaguely um, cyberpunk. Yeah. Not I, cyberpunk, I mean, steampunk. Uh, steampunk, yes. Yeah. He looks like a tank. And so for us fans, we thought that was a really cool idea. Now, please destroy my childhood. Go ahead, guys. No, I love no. the special weapons, Dalek. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think he's absolutely awesome. I think the fact that he is covered with oil and dirt and grime is brilliant. I love him. I don't think there's anything wrong. Like he was in a box. Yeah, and they just like untrained. Okay. Yeah, go do go do the dirty work for us, and uh, we'll stay here and be all pristine in our nice white and gold. And then when you've done, we'll put you back in your box. (laughs) I love him. That special weapons there looks great. In the novelization, they actually say that. The special weapons Dalek is known as the Abomination because it's been driven insane because of the radiation from the power source it's using. And really? yeah, um, wow. it's possibly also why we see it in the Asylum. Yeah. Ah, uh, the yeah, we did. Asylum of the Daleks one. So yeah, they uh, they basically were oppressing it as well. So. Oppression all round! Yay! My only problem with the special weapon Salak is it has no hands, so to speak. You know, it doesn't have like a plunger and a shooty thing. You know, it has a big shooty thing, it's but not, not a, like, a little. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, little the, you know what I mean? Not the little shooty, shooty thing, thing bigger than the other one's shooty thing. Uh, again, <laughs> you know, can't come yeah. into the penis metaphor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't have shooty thing envy. Is what we're trying to say. Well, and if you're also, you know, going that's the why it's the abomination things. because every other Dalek is like, Ooh. he makes us feel inadequate. Inadequate. <laughs> he, he is the John Holmes of the Daleks. There you go. <laughs> um. So I, w- I will say this though: um, the special weapons Dalek is the only Imperial Dalek that can hit anything. The other, yes. the other Imperial Daleks are so terrible at shooting. They make stormtroopers look like marksmen. I mean, they they literally can't hit 
anything, even though the the, the, the dark Dalek, the gray Daleks, are just standing there. They're not even moving. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. The, the thing about the Daleks in this um, in this uh, serial is that it's the first time since Genesis of the Daleks where I feel the Daleks were credible as a threat again. Uh, the, my only, I think, complaint is the way they're kind of wobbly all the time. There's a reason for that. Well, they're they're unstable. Well, but um, you finish, then I'll explain that. Yeah, but I mean, these Daleks are kind of a little bit scary, and uh, you know, with all those years of you know, oh, we just have to run upstairs to get away from you, and the Davros mask, which is getting more and more crappy with every season, <laughs> and um, the Daleks running a funeral home, bull crap of. Of remembrance of the Daleks. Yeah, it was Revelation. Uh, oh, sorry, Revelation. Uh, yeah, and the whole art. You know, I mean, it's it's refreshing to have a, a Dalek. You know, a Dalek story where the Daleks are back to being really scary space Nazis again. Yeah. Now the reason why they're so wobbly because I noticed that too when I'm watching this. I'm like, they're rocking back and forth. What the hell? Um, normally the Daleks would be on this like coaster, wheeled coaster thing. They kept them going smooth, like they're designed to look like dancers just floating across the floor. Well, for this one, they wanted them to be able to travel across like uneven and coarse surfaces outside the studio sets, so they weren't just stuck to inside shooting. So they they put this one large ball in there, I guess, to help them get around. And by doing that, it gave them that wobbly effect all the time, which it makes them look ridiculous, actually. And at the end, where the one's just bouncing back and forth, like, oh, it looks so bad. They're like kind of like drug Daleks, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Inebriate! <laughs> <laughs> totally. Okay. I want special fruit! <laughs> now, of course, when we have the Daleks around, we had to have Davros as well. And uh, oh, Thomas, okay. you mentioned uh, his little Imperial Dalek... Uh, CD stick, yes. Yes, it looks like a, a huge, giant band roll-on stick, so there you go. Does the British contingent get that reference? I can guess what it is. Okay, well, we, we had a deodorant that yeah. you would, you know, for first for and first brand, that literally was shaped exactly like Davros. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it was in this episode. I, I want to ask something. Um, why exactly was he working under a desk or something and getting tangled up in all those wires before he comes out to introduce himself? Because <laughs> he, he does look like he's just been interrupted whilst we re- rewiring a telephone network or something. Yeah, he was trying to get the Wi-Fi working and it just got out of hand really badly. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's funny because as much as you know, I, I say this is the first time the, the Daleks are scary in a long time. The second that thing flips up and it's Davros, you know, telephone operator, (laughs) a lot of that, a lot of that, the credit I give it kind of bleeds away because I'm like. (laughs) Now, uh, despite the look, I think the performance that Davros gives is threatening. You know, especially the the scene between him and uh, McCoy, I thought was, you know, I really enjoyed it. But yeah, you know, his look was really far goofier than he has been in any of the other episodes we've seen him in. Well, the the, the band roll on da- Emperor Dalek is actually, believe it or not, the whole physical look is stolen from the old comic strips I mentioned earlier. The Emperor Dalek was, did actually look like that. And it was kind of interesting. They took something non-canonical and brought it into canon, which is kind of cool. 
And it kind of sort of makes sense that it has no uh, no manipulative uh, limbs whatsoever because it's the Imperial Dalek. Every other Dalek has to do things for it. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, I also liked how the battle computer, the little girl, how, you know, for the first two or three episodes, we were convinced that was going to turn out to be Davros. Yeah. You know, my stepson even walked in the room. He's like, ooh, is that, is that, that, that guy, guy, guy? Davros. Yeah! I can't remember his name. And I'm like, no, it's not Davros. It looks like him though, doesn't it? So it was, it was a nice fake out, to, you know, when it turned out to be the Emperor. At the time, I'm, I can't remember being shocked or not, but I'm, I'm sure we were all like, oh, what? You know, Davros is, is both the worst and best thing to come out of the Daleks in the 80s, I would say. Well, yeah, it's with each progressive story where they feel like they're compelled to bring him back, he gets worse and he gets more and more silly. Yeah. You know, him as the, if I remember correctly, he's almost a head, it's been a while since I've watched uh, Revelation, but he's more or less a head. Is that not a fake Davros? Yeah, Is it's the real the Davros not coming later? Yes, you're correct. Uh, he was a head in a jar, but it turns out it wasn't really him. He comes out later, gets his other hand blown off, I think, uh, or whatever. And by this point, yeah, he's pretty much just a tor- like his shoulders up, Is I think it's all supposed to be left of him, really. Yeah. Now, this is the last time we see Davros until, like, the fourth season of New Who with right. the Stolen Earth. We don't see him again. Thank goodness. Uh, although I will recommend I, Davros, if somebody wants to listen to a, a good Davros story from Big Finish. Incredible. Cool. Uh, one more thing about this. Like we said at the beginning, this was kind of a 25th anniversary. You know, uh, so, the, you know, unlike the last time when we did an anniversary episode with the Five Doctors, not really much was paid in the show to show that this was a 25th anniversary thing. Am I kind of wrong on that? Was it more promoted over in the UK of being a big 25th anniversary thing? I remember it getting a fair amount of publicity, but that was largely due to the return of the Daleks, which always gets a lot of publicity. Silver Nemesis was really promoted as being the 25th anniversary story, I think. I could be remembering it wrong. Yeah, they that, had a that story. They had, they, had a, they had a cake and everything in the promotional shots, and it's silver on purpose. Silver Nemesis. You're absolutely so right, Andy. Go ahead. I'm sorry. There's a story where a whole lot of crazy crap happens because the writer wanted to write a story where Doctor Who is God was promoted heavier than the story that I think has a lot more resonance with that very first story, which makes sense for it to be an anniversary show. Yeah. No, no one said the BBC knew what they were doing. <laughs> it's it's like any other network trust me we've got the same thing over here um there were also a lot of nods in this to past continuity uh, do you guys want to cover some of that okay well you've got the uh the trotters lane uh they go to the scrapyard there mm-hmm. although apparently the name's spelt wrong yes that's correct um You've got the whole shilling thing, uh, shillings and pounds and pence and whatnot being explained to someone. And what was the other? There was something else. Well, the oh, the French Cole Revolution. Uh, yeah, the reading fr- the, the book. Yep, yeah, the book at, at Cole Hill School. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Forgot I thought that Cole Hill School was where uh, Susan went. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and in the first episode, she's reading the French Revolution book, and mm-hmm. apparently, Sophie Aldred watched that to try to mimic what she was doing when she was reading it. Oh, okay. okay. I didn't realize that. Cool. 
uh, the announcer, the BBC announcer, actually says, oh, yeah. "You know, coming up next, yeah. uh, our new show, Doctor, you know, Doctor," and cuts off. And mm-hmm. the speech at the beginning, of course, was was from uh, John F. Kennedy. Mm. Yep. And the the you know the story goes that uh, you know uh, which episode was it? it? Was one of the episodes in the first serial got delayed because it was supposed to air uh, the day that Kennedy got assassinated. Did it get delayed, or was it just on and more people cared about? the news on the other channels yeah i thought they, and they had to show it. it again yeah they showed it again mm-hmm. i think that was the case yeah it basically got that because i remember when they did the uh, adventures in space and time the one with uh uh filch from uh, mm-hmm. harry potter that they basically said yeah that was the reason that this first episode of doctor who really didn't get any traction because it unfortunately happened to air the same date that kennedy got assassinated there was uh, a few other references like um the doctor mentions he rigs something up similar to that glitter gun on Spiridon. Well, that's a Planet of the Daleks reference. Um, the, the doctor talks about the Yeti, and he talks about the Zygons and all oh, that, yeah. obviously other episodes. Um, doctor Jensen makes a really strange comment. She says, it's a shame Bernard from the British Rocket Group couldn't be here or whatever. That's apparently a reference to Quartermass. Quatermass! Oh, Quatermass. <laughs> oh, so there should be an R in there. <laughs> you people spell things so weird. It's a name! How do you spell the, the name weirdly? <laughs> yeah. Leland? Andrew Leland? It has a Y in it! <laughs> and Just like Cola has a U! That, that we're basically, <laughs> that we're dealing with the very, very, very early version of Unit throughout this show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely feels like that. Well, and you know, even the Doctor, when he first comes across the, uh, the, the general or the leader of the team, he calls him Brigadier. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, obviously that's how the yeah. doctor feels about this team, you know, that he's associating with, you know, past iterations of unit. Well, it's definitely written that way. Um, the person that wrote the episode uh, wrote the novelization as well, and they have bits and pieces scattered through it, um, basically saying that it was the precursor of unit, um, at least a little bit. The what's it called again the it's the countermeasures group was the precursor um and it's written by it's in the i I can word this in english um the it's (laughs) i have it here somewhere but it's like the history of unit um it's an excerpt from that is in the book itself talking about how the countermeasures group was uh, a precursor to unit and it's the book itself is written by k lethbridge stewart but not kit i i, uh, I can't remember the name i'm sorry okay. if, if i could find it it would be helpful but mm-hmm. unfortunately i can't but really it, cool. it is meant to be really. yeah they refer to this as the shortage incident yes yeah. that's the one the, the the only other continuity thing i thought was sort of a missed opportunity was when the principal or whoever, whatever his role is. You know, the Dr. Renee's come in and he says, oh, you hear about the caretaker position. Like, it would have been a great opportunity for him to say, are you here to apply for the history teacher or the science teacher position? Because that could have been Ian and Barbara's jobs being open because they were missing. But doesn't uh, this happen? Oh, no, this that's right. It ha- happens roughly about a couple of months, I think, he makes reference to when he's with the blind priest, right? Oh, does he yeah. say it's been a couple months? Uh, he says it's, yeah, he yeah. said I dropped, I, you know, he said he, he left this in, you know, a couple of months ago and he got called away suddenly. Uh. Well, I think he said the doctor left it with him about a month ago, but that means they could have left 
a month ago, or they could have left the day before. Mm-hmm. They just haven't heard from him. Okay. Interesting. All right. But yeah, um, it is meant to be set in November. I think it's been said that it's meant to be set in November. And unfortunately, when reading up on this last night, I find out that they meant to do it in this time and that the daylight hours are completely wrong because they mention it's 5.15 and it's still mm-hmm. daylight outside. Right. Which is wrong for November, apparently. Mm-hmm. It gets dark yes. at 5.15? It gets, gets dark at past three in November. Yeah. Holy mel moly! And no, I can't unsee it. <laughs> right, yeah, I, can, I hear what you're saying, yeah. Um, that's all I can think of for continuity-wise as far as within the episode itself. There's certainly stuff we'll talk about with uh, what happens after the series. But um, one of the things, this isn't continuity-wise, but it's something I meant to mention earlier. I mean, keep in mind, we've talked a lot about McCoy and his fun spirit or his goofiness or ominous, whatever. But from, from the opening scene of this show, when they first show McCoy, his plan is to commit oh, near genocide. Genocide, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And blow up a planet. That is his. That is his plan from the moment this episode starts. So, it's which like is, you, makes him the most cold-blooded doctor we've seen at that point. Absolutely. I mean, he's but he is a murderer and has still no gives them a choice. Uh, not the really. Not, well, no, he tells them not to do it. He begs right. them not to do it. He, but he, he doesn't tell them. He doesn't tell them what's going to happen if they do. Well, and here's yeah, a reference but almost nobody's going to get. Patch. He basically said, "Don't throw me into the briar patch," and they went ahead and did it. Here's Just a going back to the any... references again. Yeah, here's a reference I think nobody's going to get, but the Koi Doctor at this point is the Gallifreyan Doc Savage. Cool. Where back in the pulp, Doc Savage would confront the villain, and he'd go, "You really don't want to do that." Yes, I want to do that. No, really, you don't want to do that. Yes, you want to, I want to do that. It's like, okay, don't say I didn't warn you. You don't want to do that, and the guy would die because he did that. Mm, you want to shoot me now or wait till I get home? Shoot him now! Shoot him now! Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a different thing. Yeah, working the re- reverse psychology gig on the Daleks is, or yeah. on Davros is, is really easy because you know Davros is going to completely ignore what the Doctor says and, and do whatever he wants. So yeah, it makes sense. Well, he did, it's not he didn't. It's not like he said it will destroy you, Dav- Davros, if you do this. So I just it, it was pretty pretty heartless and pretty bloody and vicious. But then again, Davros had chosen to wipe out Earth and its entire solar system. Yeah. So, Um, But but try to imagine, let's say, Tom Baker doing this, or um, you know, Peter Davison, the the site Shag's favorite. They would never do this. They would never set up a plan from the, the second they land on Earth they might improvise a plan that would cause this sort of destruction, but they would never have that as their their main goal. Is it possible, though, that he has set up this plan because the Daleks are there? Because when he leaves, he hasn't met the Daleks. When he leaves in 63, he hasn't met them yet. But for some reason, he's landed back here. The Daleks have been there for a while. I mean, they've invaded the school. They have made friends with Ratcliffe, they've left the burn patterns and all that, uh, done whatever it is, whilst looking for the Hand of Omega. Um, They're looking for something, that's what they're there for. And so he arrives and decides, hey, do you know what? I'm going to teach them a lesson. You referring to him making, the Daleks making friends with Ratcliffe has been this image of of one of them going, 
So you want to catch a movie? <laughs> I was thinking almost the same thing. I was thinking about them sitting down to tea. Would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> well, maybe later on we will visit the, the Cybermen and we will have a well-prepared meal. <laughs> we are very good at making waffles. <laughs> uh, okay. I think a, a buddy movie with Ratcliffe and one of the Daleks would have been quite fun. I mean, a remake of Midnight Run. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, uh, Alright, a couple more quick points before we get into spinoffs. Um, I did not like the Doctor talking the Dalek into self-destructing. I thought that was ridiculous. Uh, well, I wondered if that, if that, you know, because that felt like such a Star Trek Kirk moment that it, it did kind of take me out of it. I mean, that's something you expect Shatner to pull on, you know, a generic computer number one before... The episode, so yeah, that was kind of odd, wonky, yeah. if you want to call it. I mean, I liked he was trying to be scary and moody, but like it was just silly. Um, for the first time ever, the doctor didn't leave at like the most most inopportune time. He actually went to the funeral of, of that guy. Um, no, he didn't. I, he didn't quite make it in through the door. I felt like, oh, see, I see. I kind of read it as like he was there for the funeral, but he wasn't going for the burial. Is kind of what I how I read that. But either way. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he showed up, though. I mean, he's always yeah. leaves and, like, slips away. I was like, wow, he hung around. That's weird. So I thought that was interesting. And then, um, like, some of the special effects we talked about, these are a couple of special effects I forgot to mention. The transmat, the way the Daleks appeared, like, the insides first. I thought that oh, was yeah. really cool. And I love the uh, the disruption effect. The what? Skeleton? The dis- yeah, the disruption. Yeah. The thing about making it in color for the first time really freaked me out. Because th- this was the first appearance of that? Yeah. The whole skeleton thing? I mean, is it always the rest of the time it's just like making the entire screen negative? Yeah. Yeah. So I agree, that was totally cool. That was the other one I was going to mention. Good, yeah, good good call. Loved it. So, And then the, pr- <laughs> the principal kneeing Ace in the gut is just brutal. And then when you watch part two and you have to watch it again, it's like, oh my god! <laughs> just, just need a little girl in the stomach! Well, it's okay. Get some back for it. It's true. The headmaster's not taking any of your shit. (laughs) (laughs) See, schools were more strict back then. Didn't do your homework? (laughs) That's how it was for Andy growing up, wasn't Andy? Yeah, and didn't do me any (laughs) of (laughs) them. All right, so uh, spinoffs and such. Um, So I'll run through just a couple of quick obvious ones, and then Thomas and I have a topic for discussion. Uh, there was the novel. Davis referenced many. Th- so, Dave, you've read the novel then, right? Oh, yeah. I read it last year when I was on holiday. Um, blazed through it on a couple of trains. Um, it was really good. Like I said, it goes into a lot more of the kind of themes in it. Um, the backstory between Ratcliffe and your guy, Smith. Mm. Uh, Mike Smith. Um, it's essentially he was a, what do you call it? A surrogate father figure because his dad died during the war and stuff like that and it, it's really good you should if you have it's the only one of the um the anniversary books that was a novelization um mm. they released that last was last year or yeah just for the anniversary yeah so that was that was the sylvester mccoy choice that's really interesting. I, I didn't. I forgot about the re-release. Yeah, at the time, I remember when it came out, everyone was sort of like freaking out. They said, "No, wait a minute. This one actually reads like a novel." 
Whereas all the Terrence Sticks ones were like, you know, teleplays or whatever. It, this one really got a lot of trumpeting and, and a lot of excitement. And Ben Aronovich really got a cool reputation just based on that novel. Well, it so. was his first. Um, I, th- I mean, he he's known for doing the, is it the Waters of London or the Streets of London um, series now? Um, I think it might be called something different over there, but I think he does mostly novels these days. And mm. this was his first one. This is where he started out. And I think it was also his first, uh, the first thing he got uh, made into a television program, you know, mm. his first script. Uh, he just didn't realize that he'd have to turn the script into a 40,000 word book. <laughs> but it, it was essentially, this was essentially where he learned how to do it and he was getting paid to do it. So wasn't going to, knock it yeah well he went on and did some new adventures books as well um some that are <laughs> celebrated and some that are not quite but um we also had vhs tapes we had uh like i had an interesting one it was actually packed with the chase which was kind of weird a first doctor the seventh doctor was interesting uh we've got dvds um they had some action figures specifically out of this episode uh, there's been mention of different things like there was an eighth doctor novel called the war of the daleks written by john peel where they uh-huh. actually they go through this incredibly painful uh, retconning of how all these things happen and ultimately what it was is to say that the Doctor did not destroy Scaro, he destroyed a decoy world so the Dallas could still have Scaro. it was ridiculously complex and not worth it um, but it's the only way to explain the start of the movie I guess so, mm-hmm. I, I would just call it New Scaro and be done with it But um, then there's some other references, they make a lot of references to this story in other books, but probably the most uh, biggest thing to come out of this is a spinoff, if you will, is you mentioned the Countermeasures Group. Well, mm-hmm. Big Finish actually produced a series of audios about the Countermeasures Group. It stars Group Captain Gilmore, Professor Jensen, and Allison. They did two box sets in 2011 and 2012 of episodes. I actually haven't listened to it. I didn't even know about it till not too recently. So I'd be, I'm really interested to, if anyone's listened to it either in the group here or if any of the listeners have, uh, let us know how it is. I'm curious. Hmm. I'm still the check out Lightfoot and. Jago. Jago. Still want to check them out. So good. So good. See, I think there's a missed opportunity for a, uh, you know, a special weapons doll, like adult novelty toy. I think that would have been a nice crossover. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Come on. Cannot be unseen. (laughs) Come on. If anything is phallic in this show, my Lord, that thing is. You're so bad. Yes. All right. Before we get into the, the big subject of the other, if you will, is what it's called. Yeah. Does anyone have anything they want to add? I mean, Andrew, I don't know. You, you, you tend to watch the special features. There may be stuff on there I missed. Anything you guys want to put in? Uh, no, I, I caught this on demand, so I don't actually own the DVD, so I got nothing this time. Sorry. All right. All right, well, go ahead, Shag. Well, actually, I was going to let uh, Thomas lead this one. Oh, oh yeah. The other thing that's really significant uh, about this episode is it's the it, it, this is the first one, right? Yep. Jack, this is the first uh, episode with the new script editor, because I guess eventually Eric Sauer self, you know, self imploded in a uh, big uh, <laughs> pile of suckitude. And I'm not sure if, if but I, my impression is, I want to say somewhere I heard that Andrew Cartmel, who took over as script editor, was the youngest script editor ever to work in Doctor Who, and he, along with McCoy was the person who came up with reorienting the show around the Doctor by having him be, to quote somebody, the mastermind working on a thousand chessboards. 
Halloween. Like where where he's working, where the doctor has been working an agenda since day one, and now the agenda is slowly coming into place. And uh, sometimes it works, like here. Sometimes, like in Gar- uh, Greatest Show in the Galaxy, it kind of doesn't. Mm. But it, it's a really fascinating era, I find, in, in the show's history, where they're really trying something kind of new, and everybody is really excited by it because McCoy steps up his game, Aldred, everybody is just like, yeah, this is something that we're getting into that's really nice. Yeah, a lot of it was tied in with the what they started, where the, the first hint was in this episode about the Doctor having mm-hmm. a secret past when, when they're sitting on the stairs talking about the Hand of Omega. And right, where you get the hint that yeah. he and Omega collaborated on time travel technology. Exactly. I mean, it could be very easily dismissed as a, a whatever... You know, when he goes, we, and he goes, oh, not we, or however he passes, you know, blows it off. But it's like, no, that was intentional. And it was followed up the next episode with Silver Nemesis, where you find out that, like, the, the statue there is made of some Gallifreyan metal or some nonsense. But she keeps threatening to tell, the, to tell it. She's like, Doctor, if you don't do what I want, I will tell everyone who you really are. Yeah. And he goes, I don't and, and care. Do it anyway. And then at the end, has... you're left with Ace going, Doctor, who are you really? And all the fans are sitting there scratching their head going, what's going on here? Is the show I've known for 25 years, and now suddenly I don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And there's also the fact that the Doctor has an agenda in regards to Ace as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things I love about my favorite episode um, from this season, and also one of my favorite episodes in the entire uh, run of the classic series, uh, Ghost Light, is that it's got he's got this secret agenda of having Ace confront her big fear um, to kind of get out, to kind of harden her for what if we had gone into a 28th season, was it? Uh, 27th. Yeah. 27th season. We would have learned that Cartmel's intention was that Ace was going to be dropped off at Gallifrey to end, to be enrolled in the Time Lord Academy. Yep. It's, it, that would have been interesting, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Now, Dave, you read the novel. There's something yeah. else in the novel there um, about... They scatter it through there? Well, about the other? Is it, yeah. is it scattered throughout the whole thing? It's scattered here and there. Um, it's been about a year since I read it, so I can't remember exactly where. But it does mention the other um, working with Omega and Rassilon with the creation of time travel, I think, or the at least the experiments. Yep. And uh, I, ca- I can't remember when the book was actually written, whether or not it was written before the um, show was finished or, you know, kind of after it was finished and done and they just wanted to explore a bit more of that in the book because they couldn't in the show. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was in there. Yep. And, and, and that's where they first introduced that idea that the, the basis of Time Lord Society was done by these three guys. We already obviously knew about Rassilon and Omega. But yeah, and the name they just gave him was simply The Other. That's all they did. And there's strong hints that the Doctor was The Other. Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out, what happens from here is this you know, Doctor Who gets cancelled uh, mm-hmm. one more season later, so then Andrew Cartmel's Master Plan never gets explored. Season 27, where Ace goes to the Academy, never happens. None of that gets done. However, the, the Virgin New Adventures books pick up the ball and run with it. In fact, I would say if it weren't for this episode here and, and, the, and the Cartmel master plan, I don't know that 
the new adventures would have gone the direction they went at all because it's all about the doctor being incredibly manipulative he, he's u- using everyone just like you said chess he's playing everyone and by the end of it after many many books when the series wraps up a book called Lung Barrow, they explain the whole history of the hand of omega they explain the history of the other and how the doctor is connected i'll just say it's really complicated but the doctor is in fact connected to the other so it, it was a, a much bigger world of Doctor Who that was opening up here, and it would have been really interesting to see it play out. It's quite possible that it's better for fans in our imagination that it didn't play out, because maybe mm-hmm. it would have been like Episode 1 from Star Wars or something. Um, <laughs> but there were some, I mean, that season, season uh, 27, there were some really interesting stories they were playing. They had a uh, 1960s set um, story with the Ice Warriors, that was supposed to be Carpmel's uh, pastiche of the Avengers. Mm, mm-hmm. They you were going to introduce a, a safe cracker as the doc. Once Ace left, he was going to get a new companion who was going to mm-hmm. be a safe cracker. And there was this great because you know the the opening tease we got in this episode before the credits rolled is very rare. They didn't do this very often, but they were right. planning one in season twenty-seven where this you're going to see a safe cracker sneak into like a party or something, and go upstairs, crack open a safe, and open it, and inside wedged into the safe is Sylvester McCoy. And he's going to look at her and go, it's about time. And that was how it was, this show was going to open. I mean, just some really neat stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Shag, they didn't... Because I know that they... Uh, uh, Big Finish did a, a kind of like a subset of stories that were based on legendary um, scripts that never were. Yep. They never went back and did any of the Cartmel stuff? They absolutely did all of it. Oh, okay. Never mind. It was, it was called <laughs> the uh, the Lost Adventures, I think, yeah. or something like that. Um, they're not bad. They're not bad at all. But they're not as great as you know. Just like I said, sort of episode one. It's it's. I, I always imagined it bigger. <laughs> right. So I enjoyed the they introduced the character of Rain, uh, who's that new safe cracking companion. She's the actress is exceptional. It's it's enjoyable, but it's it you know. I I always like to just there was a Doctor Who magazine article came out, I don't know, in the mid-90s, early 90s, that outlined what season 27 was supposed to be, and that's the first time I ever saw it. And that that was kind of, for me, my Bible of, of where Doctor Who was going. So I think about that when I think about where it would have ended up. Oh, and just final thing, the, the little, creepy little girl in this episode, she's totally a Sith. She threw lightning. I saw it happen. Yeah, she had <laughs> unlimited par. Instead of my <laughs> well, and we also got some of that during the, uh, not the end of time, but the final... Uh, a tenant episode with a master, him zapping people with lightning, all yeah. of that. So, you know, that's she's probably his uh, daughter. Uh, probably, we'll give it that. She was blonde, so there you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. And we do know that the master had a wife, <laughs> or you least, know, or at least a beard. Yeah. <laughs> oh come on! You don't think that that master did something? Oh god, this is getting too creepy. Forget it. No, yeah. no, no. Tenet used that joke in uh, yeah. in that time crash mm-hmm. episode. He says, the Master still have that rubbish beard? Oh, no. Well, he's got a wife. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, any final thoughts that we want to have on the episode? We'll just go round table. I enjoyed this. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was you fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it's... It, it's... Um, I do think that it's it's a pretty good episode. It's not my favorite McCoy episode, but it is a, a pretty good episode, and it kind of sets the table for what is going to be two really good years 
especially when you look at it in the context of the, the four or five years that came before it. Yeah. Agree. Everything everybody just said. Absolutely. I, I, I can't disagree with you. You know, it's I, I think it's a good reason that this was one of the ones that the BBC, at least BBC America, picked to be sort of the uh, standard for what McCoy episodes were going to be. So I, 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 I enjoyed it. Yeah. The other thing I want to I want to just briefly mention is shooting entirely on on uh, high quality video oh, made the show look so much better. Yeah, there wasn't. There wasn't that much distinction between because you know in I know in Tom Baker episodes they shot on video and on film and there was right. a different difference between the look of the the look of the show uh, from the two different types of filming uh, this you never really got that so I, I that kind of keeps you in the continuity of the show rather than sort of taking well this looks really good and this looks like it's shot on crappy video so now that helps. Yeah, I don't think there were a lot of sets either. I think a lot of this was on location. Even the school looked like it was probably a real location. Mm -hmm. The only one that could have looked uh, might have been a set was where they were using the well, obviously the Dalek ship and yeah, you know, where the transmat was. But other otherwise, it looked like yeah, pretty much all location shots, which was nice. That was the first episode of the season. They didn't realize they were going to blow their whole budget then. Yeah, true. <laughs> well, uh, if that's all for uh, this time out and no one has any closing thoughts, uh, I will call this, uh, I'll wrap this up, and we'd like to thank everyone for uh, listening, and uh, we hope that you'll come back next time for another episode of Who True Freaks, where we'll be talking Doctor Who. Uh, again, obviously. So, bye, <laughs> I mean, everyone. We're not talking about uh, travelers or sliders or anything like that you know when andy wants to do an episode of ufo i would be down or space 1999 i would love to talk about that hey yeah. whenever you want so yeah. call me for the invaders spiders. oh yeah it's been such a such a long time since i watched that show I, I remember i just vaguely remember it as a kid airing on on local stations and it, it was just a ball of fun i thought the effects were man i'm glad you did the did the the show on that because I, I it's nice getting reconnected with that kind of stuff. I gotta go the thing check I find out fascinating this. about Space 1999 is that that was kind of oddly enough the Eagles were kind of like the most realistic spaceship we've seen mm -hmm. in yeah, context they, at the time. Genuinely looked like NASA would have designed them. Mm -hmm. yep. They look fantastic. Even today they still look great. The show can be a bit of a snoozer, but the <laughs> model is brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the they look like something that you would see on a futuristic moon base. It, they were they were brilliant. As I I remember particularly from the time having an eagle toy, one of the little toys that had mm -hmm. from uh, Corgi. Hmm? Yeah, yeah, everyone had one of them. Well, no, it was uh, it was a full size one. It was like uh, a good couple feet. It was not Millennium Falcon size, mm -hmm. but it was you know a full. And you could take the the nose cone off and the the engines off and put that together to make a sort of little shuttle pod thing neat uh, too. So yeah, I I love that show and I love the toys as well. The the Mego figures were kind of goofy. The Martin Lando Mego figure, perhaps the most boring Mego figure ever. <laughs> but he I had one know. of those guns that wrapped around yeah. his hand. That yeah, was that not I, That gun was cool. It was like a. I, I don't know the lowest gun. child from Moonraker. <laughs> Migo toy. No, no, they did. It was. I think it was maybe one of the last things Migo did before they went under. 
they got the license to do Moonraker toys. Oh, dear. So, like, the Lois Childs, Holly Goodhead, or whatever the heck she was called. Yes. Um, it, it, that was just like, it's like, we, we can't even figure out an accessory for her. Here. Anyway, Sean was trying to say goodbye yeah. <laughs> before we oh. disrupted him on old TV show I, speed. I, th- I, think, I think we kind of... If we didn't, yes. Goodbye, everyone. We'll see you all Bye. Later. Bye. Bye. You can fix Farewell. <laughs> yeah, I'll fix it in post. That's yeah. fine. I just wasn't sure. Like, I, I didn't know if this <laughs> I was, we were it was all, it was all very thought, valid I, for our show. But I, I, I think it's we, fine for our show. Oh, I think yeah. anybody who listens would be fine with that discussion. I just think we weren't sure. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft, which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this. Well, no, everyone's, every, you know, I think we're all very adult and we're very polite with our... (laughs) Yeah, go on. Especially with the giant uh, yeah, special the giant, weapons, Dalek. Yeah, the special yeah. weapons, dildo, Dalek. Yeah, that was nice. Um, Sean, I will talk to you, I'm sure, very, very soon. Yes, we will. And Shag, you and I should probably get together sometime and just, just hang out. That'd be nice. You know, I'd like Because, I mean, the only time you and I talk is when we're on a podcast. Well, well, it's court mandated, but yeah, I mean, we, we oh. walk around. <laughs> yeah, the... Yes, yes, the judge did say you have to stay within 15 states of me, right? Yeah, correct, yes. So I don't tell you when I travel, so...